Okay, we will continue now with the study of the Sati Bhattana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And now we have been <coughs> we've been studying the fourth and the last of the foundations of mindfulness that is <coughs> the <coughs> excuse me the contemplation of mental objects or phenomena and so far we have discussed the five hindrances and the five aggregates of clinging and now we come to the third subdivision of this section that is the six internal and external sense spaces. Uh, as I explained when we had the first class on the contemplation of phenomena, this section of the sutta begins with the five hindrances in order to show first the obstacles that have to be overcome in order to enter into the stream of contemplation. Then the next two sections, that's the section on the five aggregates and the section on the six internal and external sense spaces, these are concerned with what we might call the sphere of actuality, the sphere of reality that is to be comprehended by insight. But as the Buddha has analyzed the world or the totality of realities in a variety of ways, the most common way in which he analyzes it, as found in the suttas, is into the five aggregates. Form or matter, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. But also, very often in the suttas, the Buddha uses a different method of analysis which is into the six, what's called the six internal and external sense spaces. That is, the six internal bases are the six sense faculties. And the six external bases are, we can say in general, they are the objects which are apprehended through the six sense faculties. Okay, first we'll just discuss the internal sense spaces. The first five bases belong to the aggregate, which of the five aggregates? to rupa, to the aggregate of matter. 
these are material phenomena but they are particular types of material phenomena these are called in the Abhidhamma it's called Pasada Rupa which means material phenomena that are sensitive to particular types of sense data particular types of sense objects that is what is called the eye or chakku it's not simply this gross physical organ but it's that particular type of substance within the gross sense organ which is receptive to color and shape and similarly the ear is not this flap here but it's that particular substance inside which is receptive to the vibrations which are transformed into sounds the nose is that not this protuberance here but it's the particular type of material phenomena someplace up at the base of the nostrils which is able to transform certain chemical signals into smells and the tongue again is a particular type of material phenomena which is able to transform certain types of signals into tastes and what we call body is the nervous tissue suffused throughout the skin and the membranes which is able to receive tangible data to transform certain types of pressure or resistance or degrees of temperature into experiences of touch And what is special about these five types of material phenomena is that they form the base or foundation or support for the arising of the corresponding type of consciousness, the type of vijnana. That is, independence upon the I organ the eye faculty there arises eye consciousness by which we are able to see visible forms or we should say actually there arises eye consciousness which has the function of seeing visible forms since there is no we or me <laughs> or self behind that eye consciousness making use of it but rather simply when forms impinge on the eye then through that act of impingement there arises eye consciousness 
which sees the form through the eye. In this relationship, the eye is the faculty or internal base and the form is the object or external base. <coughs> Similarly, the ear is the faculty or the base for the arising of ear consciousness. So when sounds, or we should say vibrations of air of a particular type, impinge on the eardrum and they stimulate that sensitive matter called ear, then there arises ear consciousness which hears the sounds. And similarly with the other physical sense faculties in relation to their objects and consciousness. When some solid or tangible object impinges on the body, then there arises an act of body consciousness, which is aware of, which cognizes or experiences that tangible sensation through the body. Okay, the case with mind and dhammas is a little more complex. According to the method of explanation and the commentaries, also in the Abhidhamma Bhitaka, when the Buddha speaks only of the six internal and external bases, then by mind we should understand all classes of consciousness are comprised in what is called mind or mana. Okay, so mind comprises the six types of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mental consciousness. Then Dhammas here, this is again according to the Abhidhamma explanation, doesn't mean simply the ideas and concepts which are the objects of the mind. But according to this way of explanation, Dhammas comprises the First, the other three mental aggregates that arise in association with consciousness. That is with feeling, perception, and mental formations. Mental formations being the volitional and emotional factors of consciousness. And dhammas also includes subtle types of material phenomena which are not experienced through the other senses. <coughs> okay. 
Okay, so that's the way these two terms, mind and dhammas, are explained only when, when only the twelve sense bases are being spoken of. But then sometimes the Buddha says, in dependence on dhammas and mind, there arises mind consciousness. When that <laughs> method of expression is used, then we should understand here that dhammas can also include any of the objects of consciousness, the objects of mental consciousness. And then in this situation, we understand mind to be what is called the bhavanga. That's the stream of consciousness or the life continuum which flows on until it's stimulated by the impact of an object, in which case, out of that passive flow of mind, there arises some active consciousness cognizing an object. I'm not sure that this is clear, but <laughs> to explain it in detail, I'd have to go into too much uh, special discussion, which would take us too far away from the sutta. Let us just be satisfied with the explanation that when the Buddha speaks of mind as the condition for the arising of mental consciousness, then mind is the passive stream of subconsciousness, we can say. It's the bhavanga. Not the total of, of materiality. The bhavanga is a type of consciousness which does not actively cognize the objects of the senses, but it's a type of, sometimes it's rendered subconsciousness, it's a type of consciousness which flows beneath the threshold of ordinary waking consciousness. For example, when one is in deep sleep, the bhavanga is flowing. And even during waking life, countless times between our ordinary sense perceptions, the mind is dropping into the bhavanga from moment to moment and immediately coming out again. But this happens so quickly that we're not aware of it. No, chitta is consciousness. Chitta includes all types of consciousness. So this bhavanga, it's also a type of chitta. But to call it chitta, it's not specific enough. Bhavanga is the chitta which is occurring when we are not actively and wakefully conscious of some object. 
Deep meditation is a state of waking consciousness, it's not the bhavanga. Bhavanga occurs in deep sleep, even also when somebody goes into a coma, perhaps the bhavanga is occurring. But as I said, even right now, <laughs> while you're listening, while I'm speaking, countless times the mind is quickly going into bhavanga and coming out, going in and coming out. It might be, if we take an analogy, it's somewhat like if there is a film showing and the film is made up of many little individual frames. Now when the film is running, <laughs> it's going by so quickly that we see a sequence of movement, like people moving, talking, and so on. And we don't see, the, you see these little black bars between each frame of the film? We don't see those little black bars. There's no blackout of the film. But actually, as the film runs in front of the projector, there's always these black bars going across and obstructing the, the image. But it happens so quickly that we don't see the black bar. And so in ordinary waking life, every time between moments of seeing, thinking, hearing, thinking, smelling, thinking, and so on, the mind is momentarily, it's cognizing the sense object, then it's dropping into the bhavanga, coming out, thinking about the object, dropping into the bhavanga, thinking of some other object, and so on. So anyway, this bhavanga is called the mind door, manodvara, because it's through the bhavanga, or based on the bhavanga, that mind consciousness arises, thinking of some object could be a purely mental object or it could be any of the sense objects. And in this case we have in this case we have each type of consciousness arising based on its corresponding internal base which is called the door for the arising of the consciousness and also supported by its corresponding external base which is called the object of the consciousness. Okay, so in the, now we come back to the text of the Sutta. Okay, the Buddha says, and further monks, 
a monk lives contemplating mental objects and the mental objects, so we can say phenomena in phenomena, with regard to the six internal and the six external sense bases. And how monks, does a monk live contemplating mental objects and the mental objects in regard to the six internal and the six external sense bases? Here, a monk knows the eye and visible forms and the fetter that arises dependent on both. He knows how the arising of the non-arisen fetter comes to be. He knows how the abandoning of the arisen fetter comes to be. And he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned fetter comes to be. Then he knows the same regarding the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and flavors, the body and tactual objects, and the mind and mental objects. In each case, he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both, He knows how the arising of the non-arisen fetter comes to be. He knows how the abandoning of the arisen fetter comes to be. And he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned fetter comes to be. So first, in this contemplation, one understands the six internal bases and the six external bases. This is the comprehension of the nature of reality, the nature of actuality. And the Buddha sometimes (coughs) in the suttas, he says that these six internal and external objects are the world, the totality of reality. Usually we think of the world as some big, all-comprehending whole, and we think that we are just chance accidental, chance accidents which have somehow arisen within this whole. And we think we are very minute, very insignificant, and we consider that it's just through a matter of pure chance that we happen to be conscious of different objects. But the Buddha's teaching on the nature of the world actually reverses our entire way of understanding our relationship to the world. The Buddha says that in the teaching of the Noble One, that in the world by which one perceives and knows the world, that 
is called the world. The world is the six sense faculties and the six objects of those faculties. Wherever we go in the world, whether we go remain in Sri Lanka, we go from Sri Lanka to Europe, to Australia, to America, what is there but eyes seeing forms, the ear as the instrument for hearing sounds, the nose for smelling scents, the tongue for tasting flavors, tastes, the body for exper experiencing tangibles, and the mind for cognizing ideas, concepts, mental objects. We send a rocket ship to the moon and send a man to the moon. He steps off the rocket onto the moon, and what is he doing? <laughs> In that case, he's probably seeing forms, maybe hearing sounds. Well, if he has some mask on, then he doesn't get much smell or taste, but he's having the touch sensations and thinking thoughts. If, he, if we invent some spaceship which will take human beings to far distant planets, to Mars, to Saturn, Pluto, Uranus, if we send people to other galaxies, what will they be doing when they step out of the, while they're on the spaceship, when they step off the spaceship, seeing forms, hearing sounds, <laughs> smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So that is the world. Even apart from human beings, in all the planes of existence, even the insects, animals, um, other forms of life, perhaps that we don't know about, maybe they have some other senses, <laughs> but in any case what they're doing constantly is experiencing sense objects through their sense faculties. Perhaps a dog doesn't see so well, so it's, most of its attention is devoted to what it's hearing and smelling. The cats, of course, can see very, very well. Maybe the insects with their antennas, perhaps they're capable of some sensations that we don't know about, but in any case, there is a sense faculty, faculty there which is analogous to our sense faculties, and it's experiencing objects of some kind. Okay, so that is the world which is to be understood, in this case, through the practice of mindfulness, attention to the objects and knowing whatever object arises through any of the sense faculties. So when the 
meditator is meditating, the eyes are shut, his attention will be mainly devoted to the object of concentration, the primary object, say the touch sensation of the breathing or the rise and fall of the abdomen. In that case, it's a touch sensation experienced through the body. Touching of in, out, in, out, or the tangible sensations of the abdomen rising, falling, rising, falling. Sometimes there might be sounds, vehicles, voices, whatever. Then it's sounds and the ear. If there comes the smell of food, then it's the nose and smells. Even when he's eating, then when one is doing mindful practice of mindfulness while eating, then there is taste and the tongue. And when thinking stray thoughts, wandering thoughts, it's just mental objects and mind. Okay, so that's how one comprehends the six internal and external bases. Then the Buddha adds another important passage to this. He knows how the arising of the non-arisen fetter comes to be. He knows how the abandoning of the arisen fetter comes to be. And he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned fetter comes to be. So in this section we have the comprehension not only of the bare actualities but also the task of understanding the fetters or obstacles that arise through the senses, understanding how they arise, how they are abandoned, and how the, the obstruction is cut off so that it can never arise again in the future. And usually the commentaries here explain when the text mentions the fetter, they bring in ten fetters, which are somewhat different from <laughs> the usual ten fetters that we know of since the commentators, I don't know why, but they bring in another list of ten fetters which is found in the Abhidhamma Bhitaka. But again, I think this makes it a little more complicated than is necessary. And to understand the fetter in this context, I think it's enough if we confine ourselves to three fetters, primarily two fetters. One fetter is the fetter of loba, it's greed or raga, lust or desire. 
that's okay so we just confine ourselves to these three major fetters which are quite evident in our ordinary sensory experience when we experience some pleasant form, sound, smell, taste, and so on, then there tends to arise greed, desire, attachment, craving. When we experience some unpleasant form, sound, smell, and so on, then there tends to arise aversion, anger, irritation, ill will, annoyance. And then what underlies all of this is delusion or ignorance. In fact, there's one sutta, a very nice sutta, where the Buddha, or actually it's Venerable Sariputta and his friend Mahakotika explained the fetter only in terms of desire or attachment. And when they're having a discussion, they raise the question whether the I is the fetter of forms or whether forms are the fetter for the eye. That's Mahakotika raises that question and Venerable Sariputta rejects both of those. He says, neither is it the case that the eye is the fetter for forms, nor is it the case that forms are the fetter for the eye, but rather it is the desire and attachment that arise in dependence on both the I and forms. That is the fetter that connects them together. Then he illustrates this point. First he says that in the case of an Arahant or the Buddha, there is the I and there are and through the I the arahant sees forms with the eye and he has an ear and hears sounds with the ear he has a nose and smells sense with the nose and so on but in the case of the arahant there is no desire and attachment and therefore there is no fetter between the form between the eye and the forms then he illustrates this with an example of two bulls, a black bull and a white bull, which are joined, connected together by a yoke. And he raises the question, would we be speaking correctly if we were to say that the black bull is the fetter for the white bull? Or would we be speaking correctly if we say the white bull 
is the fetter for the black bull? Then the answer is what? Is that the correct answer? It's the yoke that connects them, that's the fetter binding the white bull and the black bull together. And similarly, the Venerable Sariputta says, in the case of the eye and forms, the ear and sounds, nose and smells, it's desire and attachment, which is the fetter, the sangyojana, that connects them together. Okay, so that's a way in which the fetter can be explained just very simply by greed and desire. But making it a little more complicated, we could bring in three fetters. When there are pleasant objects, usually we have greed or desire for them. With unpleasant objects, there's usually aversion or irritation. And when there are neutral and different objects, then we simply remain in ignorance about their true nature. We remain deluded about them. And these three ways of responding with greed and desire, with aversion and irritation, and with delusion or ignorance, though for us they're just passing mental states, they arise and pass, but if we see them as they really are, then we would understand that these are the fetters that keep us tied to the round of becoming and which keep us in subjection to suffering. And to overcome these fetters, we have to know how they arise, what are the antidotes to eliminate them, and what are the, say, the radical remedy that totally eradicates them. First, how they arise. We would say that greed or desire actually we can apply here some of the principles we already discussed under the five hindrances greed or desire what would that arise from more loudly well kamachanda is actually a synonym for greed or desire but how does Kamachanda, sensual desire, arise when we were discussing that section. Somebody who took the notes should have the answer. What is that? Well, everybody has senses. <laughs> craving. No, craving is a synonym for greed or desire. 
But when one experiences, say, a pleasant, beautiful form, hears lovely sounds, There's a special term that the Buddha uses. I think I wrote both the Pali and the translation on the blackboard. It's through a yoni so manasikara, which means unwise attention or careless attention superficial attention to some pleasant object, subhanimitta, the agreeable or pleasant appearance of the objects. Not quite. Delusion underlies unwise attention. And it's because there's delusion underlying in the mind that we attend with this unwise attention to the beautiful appearance of things. But it's n- they're not identical, not quite identical. Unwise attention means, like delusion means that one doesn't understand the real nature of the object. Ayoni somanasikara means when, say, a beautiful or pleasant object presents itself, that one turns to it and says, ah, how delightful that would be, or how delightful that is. It doesn't penetrate it. And so through unwise attention to pleasant forms, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, or mental objects, then greed or desire arises. And so the method for abandoning greed or desire when it arises for some pleasant object, what would be the first and primary method for abandoning it? What would be the primary method? Yes? Yoni so manasikara. That's wise attention or careful attention, which can be understood sometimes as a deep analytical investigation of the object. If it's a particular sticky object that really grips the mind. For example, especially in the case of sensual desire, turning the mind to the investigation of the asuba nature, the impure or repulsive nature of the object. Or it can be simply 
noting the sense object as a mere sense object. If it's a beautiful form, then one just notes with the mind, beautiful form, beautiful form. And instead of seizing upon it, grasping it as something which has the promise, which offers, which offers the promise of more pleasure, one just thinks of it as, or just uh, recognizes it as an impermanent form which has arisen through conditions, which is empty of any substance, and which will eventually perish. And so that is, in a very simple and direct way, knowing how the abandoning of the arisen fetter comes to be. The abandoning comes about through yoniso manasikara, wise attention. And he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned fetter comes to be. That means he understands how craving, greed, desire is totally eradicated in all its forms without residue. That means knowing the stage of the noble path, the super mundane path, which eradicates craving or greed. And which path is that which totally eliminates desire? It's the arahatship path, path of arahatship. Okay, then the next better is aversion. He understands how the arising of aversion which has not yet arisen comes about. How does that happen? What is a special cause for the arising of aversion or irritation? Excuse me? Some get irritated and annoyed by them, others don't. And in the case of an arahant or even somebody who has well-developed the arising of irritation or aversion. Well, anger is a, just another, it's a synonymous word for aversion, irritation. Correct. It's ayoni so manasikara, but it's unwise attention to something in the object. What is that particular quality of the object that the ayoni, so the unwise attention is directed to? 
I think I put that on the blackboard also when we discuss. No, that's this. This is this. That's the sequence for getting rid of it. But now we're talking about what makes it arise. What makes the irritation, the aversion arise? Unwise attention to something in the object. Patika nimitta, right. It's, that's the, say, the repulsive or unpleasant aspect of the object, the disagreeable aspect of the object. For example, if one is sitting here and there comes a, a roaring sound out the window. If one thinks, gee, what a terrible sound, what an awful sound, then irritation and annoyance arise. But when it attends to the unpleasant characteristic, unpleasant appearance or presentation of that sound. If one sees some unpleasant form, disagreeable form, if one attends to it or directs the mind to it as ugly and repulsive and disagreeable, then aversion, dislike will arise. If one sees a person who one has a difficult relationship with, then one attends to that person when the person enters the room, one attends to him, bringing to mind all the disagreeable features of his personality, then ill will and anger will arise. And so to get rid of that aversion and anger when it has arisen, the abandoning of the arisen fetter, then what is the primary method that we use? Put very simply, just in terms of the opposite of the cause for the arising, and we call it yoniso manasikara, that it's through wise attention to that object. So if it's, for example, a disagreeable sound, then we don't pretend that it's a Mozart sonata, <laughs> but we just become aware that it's disagreeable sound, harsh sound, but just attend to it as bare sound, some sound impinging on the ear, instead of turning the mind to that grating and nerve-twisting characteristic of the sound, one just attends to it as bare sound. If it's a disagreeable form, instead of 
fastening the mind onto the disagreeable presentation, the disagreeable features of that form, then one just will note it as maybe an ugly form or just a form, just a form, a form. And so with the other objects, one will note them just as sense objects without projecting one's own likes and dislikes onto the objects. Okay, and that's the way to bring about the abandoning of the arisen ill will, anger, aversion. And I should say that these are methods that are to be used not only when formally, when sitting in formal meditation, but these methods can be used throughout the day-to-day activities of daily life. Whenever situations arise which provoke desire and detachment, then one can apply the remedy for abandoning the arisen fetter of greed and desire. When a situations arise which stimulate aversion, irritation, then one can apply these methods for overcoming the arisen fetter of ill will. Then he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned fetter comes to be. That is, he knows how the total eradication of ill will comes to be. And that is through one of the supramundane paths, which is that? Which of these paths? Louder, please. No, we're talking about the four stages of the supramundane path. Total eradication. The third, yeah. That's the stage of non-returna, which eliminates ill will, anger, hatred. All of that is eliminated by the third stage. Okay, then the third fetter is the fetter of delusion. And that is explained as arising simply from unwise attention in general. Just not attending wisely to the true nature of the objects, but taking them to be truly pleasant, taking them to be lasting and stable, or identifying with them as myself, what I am. And so this fetter of delusion is to be overcome by wisely attending to the objects. That is by attending to the object in terms of the three real characteristics as impermanent, as unsatisfactory or suffering and 
as not-self. And then the fetter of delusion is totally eradicated so that it doesn't arise again. At what stage? Arhatcha. right, the fourth and final stage. Since it's only the Arhat who's completely eliminated ignorance. Okay, and then the Buddha completes the section by that same standard passage which we've already gone over many times so I won't repeat it again. The monk lives contemplating mental objects and mental objects internally, externally, both internally and externally. He contemplates the origination factors, dissolution factors, and so on. Okay, I think that will conclude this talk. If there are any questions, anything unclear, then please feel free to ask. Any questions? Okay, then we will continue again next week with the section on the seven factors of enlightenment, seven bojangas. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.